righteousness and your completed work on the cross, Lord, your grace that you show us. We just thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you take your seats? Well, this morning, um, I want to pray before our, uh, we have a special guest speaker with us. Um, some of you may know him. He was on staff here about a year and a half ago. It's our good friend T.J. Friedman, and um, he's going to come and just share the word for us. He and his wife and his girls are here visiting with us this past week, and um, he's now in Pennsylvania pastoring a church there, and it's just our great privilege to have him here this morning and just bring the word to us. But before he comes, let me just pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your presence here this morning. Lord, as T.J. opens the word, Lord, I ask that our hearts would be ready to receive. Lord, give us ears to hear what you would speak to us, that your word would pierce our hearts, Lord, that we just wouldn't be hearers of your word this morning, but we'd go out from this place and be doers. Lord, we'd be changed by your word. Speak to our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Well, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Well, friends, those words written by John Lennon in 1971 became the lyrics to his best-selling single of all time. It's a song called Imagine. And I have to wonder, what is it that made that particular song so successful? Was it just the fact that he had written a catchy melody? Well, I don't believe so. There were many catchy melodies written before, and there have been many catchy melodies written since. So what was it that John Lennon did to capture the hearts of the entire world? Well, I think he touched on something that few are able to achieve. I think he got to the core of the human heart. And I believe that what struck a chord with the people of the world is that John Lennon wrote a song that touched on our major problem, a desire to experience perfect and lasting peace. That's what he was writing about. John Lennon put into words what you and I already know, that though we spend our entire lives grasping at peace, it always slips back through our fingers, and we never seem to be able to take hold of it. Now, we may have glimpses of peace. We may have moments where everything is going well, but all of a sudden, something interrupts our life, and everything is shattered. It's the call from the doctor that tells you, you need to come back in because something wasn't right during your last exam. It's that unexpected expense that pushes you beyond your financial boundaries and you don't know where the money for the next bill is going to come from. It's the family member that pushes your every button. And no matter how hard you try, that person just won't get along with you. 
Or it's the job that you walk back into day after day after day, knowing full well that your heart just wants to walk away for good. Or maybe it's that sinking feeling when depression sets in once again, and you don't know how you're going to get back out. Well, as you can imagine, John Lennon was not the first one to make a public proposal for peace. In fact, 2,000 years ago on a hillside just outside of Galilee, another man made the same proposal. He preached a sermon that actually became the most famous sermon ever preached. And it's a sermon that you and I refer to today as the Sermon on the Mount. There is no word that myself or any other pastor can preach that will touch the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, whether you are religious or not, you probably know more about the Sermon on the Mount than you realize. For example, when someone strikes you, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. Um, You cannot serve both God and money or mammon. Um, Our Father who are in, all of these things came from the Sermon on the Mount. And so even those who have never cracked open the pages of the Bible have the words of Jesus in their minds. That's how powerful this Sermon on the Mount is. And in that sermon, Jesus told us something surprising. But actually, it shouldn't be that surprising, for the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdom of this world. Jesus does not operate the same way that we do. In fact, it is an upside-down kingdom. And this is a series that you have been studying for the past several weeks that I have the opportunity to join you in this morning. And so as we continue that series, would you please take out your Bible and open to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We'll be studying Matthew chapter 5 this morning as we uh, join with those who followed Jesus up onto the hillside out of Galilee to sit under the most famous teaching of all times. Uh, I'm actually going to read the first 12 verses so that we have the full context of the Beatitudes, though we will be focusing on verse uh, 9 primarily. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And may God take this familiar passage and awaken our hearts to the truth as we wrestle with hearts of wickedness. Well, in a room this size, um, there are probably one or two who enjoy conflict. There would be a a couple in here who who you seem to thrive for some reason on dysfunction. But the vast majority majority of us will do anything we can to keep our lives free from strife. 
We far preferred uh, smooth sailing over any type of rocky waves. That's how we are wired. And so we've become actually very good at avoiding conflict. We've developed the ability to, to see it and to avoid it. Just, just think about it. What do you do when you see somebody coming who you've had a disagree, disagreement with? You go the other way. You see them and you avoid them. You know you've done it. And what do you do um, when you're upset with someone? I think oftentimes, rather than dealing with the, the problem head on, we go and gossip to our friends and our families, uh, to others, uh, about others, rather than just uh, dealing with the issue. And sadly, I, I think this uh, desire to avoid conflict is the very reason that most of us do not engage in evangelism. We want to avoid that social conflict of engaging in battle with someone. Yet despite the fact that uh, we love to avoid conflict, I, I think if I walked around this room with the microphone and, and asked you, uh, is there any conflict in your life? Do you have any strained relationships? I would say that probably every one of us would say, yeah, I do. I, I can think of at least one strained relationship in my life right now. I do try to avoid conflict, but if I'm honest, conflict is a major part of my life. In fact, some of the conflict that you are dealing with this morning is significant. It's heavy. Um, There are parents in this room who are not speaking to their children. There are children in this room who have fully rejected the authority and the honor due to their parents. There are brothers and sisters in here who have not spoken in years with their sibling, because you've allowed conflict to divide. But there are other forms of conflict that I think are less significant, like the coworker that you just can't get along with. He just rubs you the wrong way. Or that acquaintance that if you can avoid it, you will miss them so that you don't have to engage them in conversation. Uh, or worse, it could be the person sitting a few rows over, even this morning, that hurts you, and you have not dealt with it yet. Brothers and sisters, try as we may to avoid it, we are all going to experience significant conflict throughout the course of our life. And so what's the problem? Um, Why do our best efforts to remain uh, friction-free constantly fail? Why do we find ourselves engaged in conflict over and over, sometimes significantly uh, tearing at our hearts? Well, could it be possible that conflict is simply a, a symptom? Could it be possible that at the root is something far deeper, something that runs in all of us? Church, the truth is that you and I are driven by something different. We are driven by a relentless effort to satisfy ourselves. That's what drives all that we do. That is at the root of that fruit we call conflict. But don't take my word for it. I want you to consider this from Scripture Um, wasn't it a focus on herself that caused Eve to sink her teeth into that forbidden fruit? She wanted to be like God. She, She wasn't interested in tasting that fruit. She wanted to taste of what it was like to be the ruler of all things. She was on a relentless pursuit to satisfy herself, and Adam followed suit, and you and I have been doing it ever since. 
Think about other instances from Scripture. Wasn't it a focus on self that drove Cain to kill his brother Abel, becoming the first murderer in human history? Wasn't it a focus on self that caused David to lie with Bathsheba and then have her husband murdered? Wasn't it a focus on self that caused the Pharisees to gather a crowd around them who would stand before Pilate, rejecting their Savior, chanting those horrifying words, crucify him. And isn't it a focus on self that causes you and I to reject our Savior once again every time that we give in to sin? Folks, we are relentlessly in pursuit of ourselves. And in fact, that pursuit of ourselves causes us to approach Scripture wrongly. So, so we open up the pages of God's Word, the most important truth of all time, and instead of looking for God in the pages of Scripture, who do we look for? Ourselves. And so we approach the stories of the Old Testament, and what do we do? Mm, David was an underdog, and, and, and he slayed his giants. And, you know, I think I might be an underdog, so I've got giants in my own life that I need to slay too. And we place ourselves square into the uh, stories of Scripture. And we do the same thing through the New Testament. Uh, we, we read the, the commands of Paul or of Christ himself, and we say, you know, what does this passage tell me that I need to do in order to be pleasing to God? And so we make uh, the Scripture either a story about us or a list of rules that we have to follow. And every one of our hearts longs to place ourselves within Scripture. I mean, we would love if we could just reduce Scripture to a checklist that we need to, to work through. So, um, I've read my Bible today, check. I've prayed today, check. I've followed the command to love others as best as I could, check. And at the end of the day, we say, God, you should bless me for what I've done. Don't, don't you see what I've done for you, Lord? And we approach Scripture wrongly based upon this um, relentless pursuit of ourselves. But the truth is this. The pages of Scripture do not exist to provide us with a checklist of things that we must do. There is a checklist in Scripture, but the reality is it's not what we accomplish on the list. It's what Christ has accomplished on the list on our behalf. So the the truth is if you are in Christ, every box is checked. Every box is checked because the blood of Christ covers all of those sins. And you are not to look for you in Scripture, but to look for the Savior that you so desperately need. That is the point of all of Scripture, and that is the point as we approach, once again, these Beatitudes. And and if you don't believe me, um, jump down to Matthew 5.48. Look what those words say. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, if your heart longs for a checklist, add that one to the list. And you will see so quickly that this is not some ladder that you must climb to reach Christ. This is a wall that you smack into so that you see you actually need Him. The Beatitudes are not about your ability to earn God's favor and thereby be blessed. The Beatitudes are a picture of what you look like if you've been blessed by His grace already. And so as we approach this uh, beatitude this morning, uh, we will bear that in mind. And so arriving here at the seventh beatitude, 
Uh, And in these famous words of Christ, we're going to focus uh, on one statement. Uh, The statement is this. As one who has received God's approval, I abandon my relentless pursuit of myself and engage in a God-glorifying pursuit of peace. I'll, I'll read that again. As one who has received God's approval, we've already got it if we are in Him. I abandon my relentless pursuit of myself and engage in a God-glorifying pursuit of peace. We've already established the sad reality that we spend most of our lives in pursuit of ourselves. And we've already confessed that it drives us to conflict with others on a regular basis. And Scripture verifies this. Remember what James said, uh, James 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not the passions that war within who? Within you. Our, our pursuit of ourselves is what drives us into conflict. But remember, if you've been embraced by the gospel, everything changes. If you've truly become poor in spirit, if you've said, you know what, when I come before God, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I, I literally have nothing to offer. My checklist is empty on my own. And if you've mourned that sin, recognizing that before a holy God, I am undone. I deserve nothing but his wrath. And I legitimately believe that that is what I deserve. I was marching uh, full throttle toward the gates of hell. And I deserve to walk through them. And if you've become meek under the weight of God's grace, recognizing that when you were at your worst, he pulled you off of that terrible path and didn't just make you friends, didn't just give you a pardon, he made you family. He made you co-heirs with Christ in the midst of your terrible, sinful, wicked condition. If you've been made meek that way, and if you've begun to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and if you've um, seen evidence of those other beatitudes in your life, then everything completely changes. And as a result, you know what you'll pursue? You'll begin to pursue peace. So let's consider what we look like in that condition. Let us consider what it is like to be a peacemaker. And we'll just briefly consider three characteristics of a person who pursues peace. And I'll read them to you. Uh, The first is this. When I pursue peace, I am mesmerized by grace. I'm mesmerized by it. The second is I am motivated by glory. And the third is I am moved to imitation. So as a peacemaker, I'm mesmerized by grace, I'm motivated by glory, and I am moved to imitation. Let's just start with the first one. When I pursue peace, I'm mesmerized by grace. Well, the truth is, there's only one thing that can snap me out of my sinful stupor, and that is the grace of God. But for many of us, the longer we live, the more we become comfortable with grace, It just becomes a a word. I mean, we all know John 3.16. We know that God loves the world and he sent his son. And we just kind of get accustomed to that. It becomes normal for us. But let me tell you this. Grace is not the kiddie pool that you dip yourself into on the way to the deep end. It's not where you start and then you move on to the deeper things. Grace is the deeper things. And so we are mesmerized, enamored by the fact that God has given us his grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But remember this, 
Amazing grace is only sweet if you truly have arrived at the belief that you are a wretch. It says Thomas Watson once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If the bitterness of your sin has driven you uh, to see your true condition before Christ, if you know that you are actually a wretch, that you deserve wrath, but instead you've been extended amazing grace, you will arrive at an important conclusion. And that's this. I deserve nothing. I've been given everything. Therefore, I will do anything. I deserve nothing. I mean, do you really believe that? But I've been given everything. Therefore, I'll do anything. How, how could I not? It's God's grace that has you mesmerized. It's God's grace that drives you to abandon your relentless pursuit of yourself and to pursue him instead. Remember, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. And that becomes our motivation. It's no longer about our glory, my pursuit of me. It's about his glory, uh, his pursuit of me and my response to that. And that leads to our second characteristic. When uh, When I'm pursuing peace, I'm motivated by glory. I am motivated by glory. When we are motivated by God's glory, we do things that we normally would not do. And to illustrate this, let's just consider our typical behavior when we engage in conflict. I think there's really two main reasons that drive us into conflict rather than being a peacemaker in our everyday life. In other words, when we enter into conflict with another person, it's usually for one of two reasons. Either I believe that I have been wronged or I believe that I am right. Now, I know they sound similar, but let me try to, uh, to, to demonstrate to you what I mean by the difference. Um, I want you to think about how much conflict exists uh, just simply because we believe that we've been wronged by another person. So if you've been of- uh, offended, you've experienced this. Usually when I'm offended by someone, it's because I believe I've been treated in a way that I did not deserve to be treated. There's been some injustice, and I am offended as a result. Uh, If I won't forgive someone, why is it? It's usually because I'm concerned that they've crossed some line that I've set up in my own mind, and they are no longer worthy of my uh, full-out relationship. So I'm going to withhold that from them by way of not extending forgiveness to them. I'm going to engage in conflict because I believe that I have not been given the honor that I'm due. If I won't be loving, it's usually because I don't believe I've been treated in a loving way. If I walk into my house after a long day and my wife ignores me, that does not drive me to have ooey-gooey love feelings. That drives me to treat in kind. So when we enter into this type of conflict, um, we are responding to a lack of love with a lack of love because we, again, believe that we have not been treated the way that we deserve. And nine times out of ten, conflict arises when we conclude that we've been treated unfairly, that we've been misunderstood, or that we've been wrongfully rejected by another person. That's why we do it. It's it's a relentless pursuit of ourselves. But I fear that there is a form of conflict that may be a little more subtle, making it that much uh, worse. That is when we believe that we are right about something. When I've got something that I think I am right on, I'm going to take a stand in ways that I would not normally stand. Um, If you're married, raise your hand. 
if you are the primary driver in your relationship, you, you drive the vehicle on just about every occasion, keep your hand up. Okay, there's lots of primary drivers. I don't know your reason for being the primary driver, but I have my reason for being the primary driver. Um, that's that I like to be in control, all right? Um, we develop this mindset that we are the only ones that can do it right. And so we've got to be the ones that take control. It's the same reason I don't like to fly in airplanes. And I've shared this here before, um, but just briefly, when I get onto an airplane, actually when I walk through the terminal, uh, I'm making sure that, that the security guards are doing a good job. I, I want to make sure that nothing over three ounces gets through on that conveyor belt. Uh, I'm double-checking everything. But then when I see the plane, I, I'm not sitting there relaxed. I'm looking out on the tarmac, making sure that the pilot goes every, over everything he's supposed to. Uh, I'm making sure that the guys who are putting in the fuel put in enough fuel. Uh, and then as I board the plane, I'm actually making sure that everything's okay. There's no cracks on the outside of the plane that I can observe. Um, nothing is happening within the plane that shouldn't be happening. Nobody got through security that shouldn't have. And I'm helping the pilot the whole time I'm on the flight. Why? I don't know. I have no idea what goes on when you fly, but I have no control in that situation. So I have to do everything I can to just gain a little bit of control and thereby uh, convince myself that everything is going to be okay. So I take ridiculous stands because I think I'm right. I've asked the stewardess, thousands of annoying questions. Is that air supposed to be coming out like that? Um, are you supposed to let that person sit in the exit row? Uh, when we think we are right about something, we're driven to bad uh, behavior. But we do it in much worse ways. In fact, often this drives us deeply into conflict. Um, there are those of us who are apt to cause divisions in a group because we think we're right about something. You know, my experience, um, my insight, that's enough to carry this to the place that it needs to go. So, so I'm willing to take my opinion and dominate the group with it because I think I'm right. I'm not willing to submit. I'm not willing to be a team player. I want you all to follow me because I'm right. Driving us deeper and deeper into conflict. There is not one church that has ever split that did not walk through that very thing. Or some of us might be micromanagers. We just can't let other people do their work because they're not doing it the exact same way that we do it. So we come behind them and we drive them crazy, making sure that they get the job done in a way that we see fit. Why? Because we believe we know something. And if you've ever been micromanaged, you know that that is a significant source of conflict. But there's a fundamental problem here that we can't miss in both scenarios, and that is this. When I enter into conflict, it is always because I believe myself to be better than I really am. Every time I engage in conflict, that is the core of what I believe. I am better than I really am. When I engage in conflict, I am not poor in spirit. I don't believe that I come bankrupt. I actually believe I bring a lot to the table. I'm not mourning my sin. I'm not even concerned about my sin when I'm in conflict. I'm concerned about the sin I see in the lives of others. I'm not meek. I'm bold. I'm not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I'm hungering and thirsting after my own sad and sinful agenda every time that I engage in conflict. And ultimately, I am, just like Eve, setting myself up as the highest authority, saying that I need to be just as God. And the problem is that I've forgotten that I have no authority at all. 
for he is far greater than I am. And deep down, I think when we elevate ourselves in this way, we are drawing all of the worship to ourselves and away from the Savior who deserves it so much. And when I'm blessed by God, when I'm a peacemaker, when I reject my, myself and I begin to pursue Christ, everything begins to change. So now I'm not driven by what I must do or what I must receive. Now I'm driven by what Christ has already done and what he must receive. I'm, I'm mesmerized by grace. I know I deserve nothing. I've been given everything. I'll, I'll do anything. And once again, I'm reminded that I have abandoned my ways in pursuit of his glory. That's what was pictured when you were baptized. You went down. You died to yourself, and you were raised with Christ. You already abandoned your ways if you are in him. And you are now in relentless pursuit of his glory. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And with that in mind, we'll just look at our uh, third characteristic of a peacemaker. When I'm a peacemaker, uh, when I'm pursuing peace, I am moved to imitation. Moved to imitation. And there's probably some of you in here this morning who are thinking, okay, I can see some of this in my life. Uh, I've experienced conflict. I blamed everybody else. I kind of get where you're going. Now could you please give me some principles that I can pursue? What can I do to actually stop doing this and start being a peacemaker? Well, friends, if I were to give you a list of what you must accomplish this morning, I would do you a severe injustice. I I can't add to your checklist. I can only do what all of Scripture does, and that is point you back again once more to your Savior. That is the only solution. That is where our hearts need to go. And so here's what we recognize if we're going to imitate him. Christ had compassion on me, though I despised him. So I will have compassion on others, though they despise me. And I want to actually turn your attention to a passage of Scripture. If you would please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to remind us of our condition in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy passage of Scripture, so if you have your Bible, please turn there and follow along. Ephesians 2, these are the words of the Apostle Paul, uh, and he's pointing, just as we all should, straight to Christ. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Okay, you get that? You and I were not just following ourselves. We were dead and following Satan. That's where we were. That's where you were and I was. Um, Moving on. uh, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And as a result, look at this, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But don't miss verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in, in them. Verse 11. Verse 11 begins with the word therefore. Every time you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself the question, what is it? Therefore. And in this case, I think it's there to drive you back to what we just said. The gospel. You were dead. You deserved wrath. But God saved you for his own glory, not because you were good or worthy or lovely. Therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, that's us, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, look at this, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Again, it says, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Church, that's what we are to imitate. Those who deserve grace the least, receive it. Those who you enter into conflict um, legitimately because they are being unreasonable or they are being unfair or any of those things, they deserve your grace. Because God has extended you grace when you deserved it, deserved it least. And I have to say this, the worst that somebody can do to you pales in comparison to the worst that you've done to Christ. We extend others grace. We have compassion on others when they deserve it least because we've received it when we've deserved it least. That's what we're called to imitate. And so every time you find yourself engaging in conflict, remember that therefore. And be driven back to the gospel. Be mesmerized by that grace. It changes everything. When I was on staff here uh, at the family church, I had uh, the tremendous privilege of working in the counseling ministry and in the discipleship ministry. Um, and sitting in the counseling office, um, I saw a tremendous amount of conflict. Uh, I had the opportunity to work even with some of you who uh, were dealing with conflict in your life. And it taught me much. In fact, during my time here, um, I, I learned a tremendous amount. And much of that is due to your pastors, Terry and Casey. Um, you should know, as a side note, they are still pastoring me today. Um, they are the first people I call uh, when I need advice or when I uh, don't know what to do next or where to go. Um, they call me regularly just to see how I'm doing. Um, they've had a profound uh, influence on my life and shaped me in a significant way. But anyway, as I was here um, sitting in the counseling office, and if I've, as I've had the opportunity to counsel many of those in Pennsylvania at Wellsboro Bible Church, I've noticed that there's a, a common thread that I see in almost every counseling situation, and that is this. When we walk through difficult circumstances in life, you know what we want to know? Why? That's what we really want to know. Why is this happening? You know why you want to know that? Because you want to know how to fix it so that it never happens again. We want to know why these things are happening to us. We need to reconcile it in our mind. 
But interestingly, James gives us a little bit different perspective. You know what he says? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Joy in the midst of trial. Joy in the midst of conflict. Why? Because uh, when you go through trials, you become steadfast. And when you become steadfast, you become mature. And you are then looking more and more like your Savior on a daily basis. And if you are saved by the blood of Christ, that is your highest goal. So the very thing that you live for is happening to you every time that you engage in conflict. And so it is best that we stop viewing it as an annoyance or a problem or something we need to avoid because your ability to solve it or walk through it is not what Christ is after. He's after your heart. And you can rejoice in the fact that he is pursuing you in that way, loving you and making you more like himself. And I think that's because Christ sees conflict as a means to dispense his grace. And if we're going to imitate him properly, we then view conflict as a means to dispense his grace to others. That's how we view conflict. So, so every time we approach it, we're not asking, how do I get out of this? We're asking, how can I show the love of Jesus to this person that I'm entering into conflict with? Because that's what he's done for me. When we pursue peace... When we live as a peacemaker, we actually do that which we were created to do. We bring glory to the eternal God who loves you, who died for your sins, though you rejected him. And this morning, the the weight of God's word may be heavy upon your shoulders. As I prepared for this week, the weight of these words were very heavy upon my shoulders. And like the rest of us, we, we look at these words and we say, I'm not even getting close. I don't think I'm moving in that direction at all. I'm not a peacemaker. I'm a wicked sinner. But there's hope. Remember, there is amazing grace. God is powerful to save a wretch even like you. And so, dear friends, here's my encouragement to you this morning. Repent. Turn from your sins and follow him. And if you're here this morning, he's giving you that opportunity once again. Don't miss it. Don't let your heart grow cold and hard. Sit under the weight of God's word and say, thank you, Lord, for undoing me. Help me to follow you. That's what we're called to do. This morning is a God-ordained opportunity for you to experience grace. There are probably some in this room this morning who are not peacemakers simply because you've never experienced that grace for the first time. And you know what the word is for you? It's the same thing. Repent. Repent of your sin. Thank God for exposing it to you. Turn from your selfish ways and follow him. And whether you are doing that for the first time or the thousandth time, you need to speak with your pastors about what God is doing in your heart. Let them know that you want to pursue Christ instead of yourselves. That's what they are here for. Um, Get involved in a connect group. Start to work with folks who are moving in the same direction that you want to go. Attend core classes. Go deeper in your faith. All of those things are things that you can add to your little checklist, but ultimately your goal is singular. Stop following yourself and begin to follow Christ. For when he is strong, or when we are weak, he is strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for another opportunity this morning to sit under the heavy, heavy weight of your word. Lord, I thank you that these words did not simply reach the ears of those in Galilee and stop, but they were recorded in Scripture so that we can be impacted by them as well. 
Father, I just ask that this morning as you um, reveal our wickedness and, and expose our sin to us, that it would do the work it's meant to do, drive us straight into a wall so that we look to you instead of ourselves. God, I thank you for your grace. Let us be enamored by it all week long. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, I've asked Luke to come and just kind of close us out in a few lines of Jesus paid it all. Uh, this, is, this is our battle cry. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. And uh, I'd like to encourage you to uh, make this the song of your heart as you sing this. Make, make this the anthem that you uh, consider all week as you uh, see less of you and more of him. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed in white as snow. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin Oh,